This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Now I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Open to the book of Philippians. If you need a Bible, you can go ahead and shoot your hand up in the air. We would be happy to get one to you. So just go ahead and put your hand up. You can find the book of Philippians by looking in the table of contents. That will show you the page number. Turn to that page number and then look for the big number two. The big number two gives you the chapter. And then we're going to be in verses five through eight this morning. As we've already noted, this Sunday marks the beginning of what church tradition calls the Advent season. Advent is Latin for the word coming. It's when we celebrate the coming of Jesus at Christmas and also anticipate his coming again at the end of all time. And so as we go through this Advent season, we're going to take some time to go through a special sermon series. And to help us understand the purpose of this series, the real heart behind it, I want to share with you a true story. In 2007, a man sat at a metro station in Washington, D.C., and started to play the violin. It was a cold January morning. He played six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes. During that time, since it was rush hour, it was calculated that thousands of people went through the station, most of them on their way to work. In the 45 minutes the musician played, only six people stopped and listened. About 20 gave him money, but continued to walk at their normal pace. He collected $32. When he finished playing and silence took over, no one noticed it, no one applauded, nor were there any recognition. No one knew this, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the best musicians in the world. And he had just played one of the most intricate pieces of music ever written, with a violin worth 3.5 million dollars. Two days before his playing in the subway, Joshua Bell sold out a theater in Boston and the seat's average was $100. This was a social experiment organized by the Washington Post. The outlines were simple. In the hustle and bustle of everyday life, do we perceive beauty and do we stop to appreciate it? One of the possible conclusions from this experience could be if we do not have a moment to stop and listen to one of the best musicians in the world playing the best music ever written, how many other things might we be missing? What a poignant question. In the hustle and bustle of our lives, how many beautiful things might we be missing? Over the next few weeks, we are going to slow down and take advantage of this Advent season to make sure that we don't miss the most beautiful thing this world has ever known, which is the beauty that the God of the universe has written himself into the story of this world. Jesus came to earth so that we could live with him as our king. And so our Advent series is Behold Our King. Behold our king. That's what we're going to be doing over the next couple weeks. We're going to be beholding our king. And to 
give us a taste of what I hope that ends up being for us. I love this quote from Robert Murray McChain where he writes, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the worst. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in His beams. Feel His all-seeing eye settled on you in love and rest in His almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. Friends, that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks together. We're going to be beholding our King and letting our souls be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the excellencies of who He is. And to help us do that, let us now turn our attention to the book of Philippians chapter 2 and read together from God's Word in verses 5 through 8. This is the Word of God to us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's bow our heads, and I want to invite you to have a moment of private prayer between you and God, asking him to speak to you through what you're about to hear in the preaching of his word. Now, if you'd be so kind, please pray also for me that I'd be strengthened by the Spirit to speak in a way that's helpful to you and glorifying to God. God, I pray that you would help us to position ourselves underneath the authority of your word this morning we might hear you addressing us. Give us eyes to see what you want to show us. Give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. Give us hearts to receive what you want to give us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, may a far greater sermon be experienced than the one I'm actually going to give. Lord, please meet us as we are. Speak to the places where we need to hear you most. But don't leave us as we are. Would you build us up in our most holy faith in Christ for the glory of Jesus' name. And it's in his name we pray and say, Amen. Amen. If you're familiar with this passage, you'll notice that I stopped before the great climax of verses 9 through 11. That was intentional because in coming weeks we're going to spend some time meditating on the glory of Christ. But for this morning, I want to draw our attention 
to how this text talks about the humility of Christ. Part of Jesus' beauty is not just who he is, but also how low he was willing to go for us. Friends, if you can sometimes wonder, does God really love me? If the bumps and bruises and painful twists of life can sometimes make you feel like God is distant and removed and maybe doesn't actually care that much, this text has something profound to say to those feelings. Here's the big idea that this text wants to bring home to our hearts. It is this. Seeing how low he became shows us how loved we are. It is seeing how low he became that shows us how loved we are. I have two points for us to guide us through this text. We're going to consider the divinity of Christ and then the humility of Christ. We start with the divinity of Christ because it is the divinity of Christ that shows us the incredible depth of the humility of Christ. Seeing how exalted he is is what magnifies the immensity of the length he went to become so low for us. And it is, it is his unimaginable humbling that reveals to us his unfathomable love. Seeing how low he became shows us how loved we are. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Behold Our Humble King. Behold Our Humble King. Let's consider the divinity of Christ. Verse 6 says that Jesus was in the form of God. Now we read that in our modern understanding, we can think that means that Jesus is, he appeared to look like God, he was kind of like God, but not actually really. One time I was trying out for a musical in high school, and so I had to sing, and after I got done singing, the director kind of just looked at me and said, well that's a, that's a form of singing, you know. Um, needless to say, I didn't get the part. Right? We can think that form means kind of, but not really. But that's not what form means at all here in Philippians chapter 2. We have to understand that this was written in a Greco-Roman culture. And the language of the Greco-Roman culture was largely influenced by their philosophers, one of the most notable being Plato. And just in case it's been a while since you've read Plato's works, in which he lays out his theories of form, let me remind you what that is. Plato's theories of forms is that it's this idea that everything in existence is a derivation of its ultimate form. And so, for example, while there are millions and millions of kinds of chairs, there's only one ultimate form of chair that is the true essence of chairness. Every other chair in existence is just a shadow of that one true form of chair. And so for a Greco-Roman person like Paul to talk about forms, what he means is not that Jesus is kind of like God, but not actually. No, what he is saying is that Jesus is the true essence of God. He makes this abundantly clear as he goes on to write that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus could have grasped onto equality with God, because that equality is rightfully his since he is God. Scripture shows us that there is only one true God. But this one true God exists in three 
persons. There's God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. These persons are distinct from one another, but united in their essence as the one true God. So here's just a sampling, so you don't have to take my word for it. Here's just a sampling to show you how God and the Son are of one essence. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1, 1. It's the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the true essence of God, distinct in person from the Father and Son, but of one essence, co-eternal, co-glorious, co-holy, co-divine. As the early church says in its Nicene Creed, Jesus the Son is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. John Owen, in his excellent book, The Glory of Christ, says it this way, he was in the form of God, that is, he was God. So he was equal with God in authority, dignity, and power. Because he was in the form of God, he must be equal with God. For though there is order in the divine persons, there is no inequality in the divine being. There's an order, Father, Son, and Spirit, But there's no inequality in that order. There's only one true God who is always, fully, equally himself. Now, if we spend some time thinking about God being three in one, which is the doctrine of the Trinity, if you think about the Trinity long enough, your head will start to hurt. I mean, the Bible clearly describes that God is three in one, but just because the Bible clearly describes it does not mean that we can fully comprehend it. And so people throughout the ages have tried to come up with analogy, analogies to try to help us understand this better. But the reality is, every analogy falls apart. And so some have said, well, it's like a triangle, right? You have one triangle, but a triangle has three parts, three sides, right? There's only one triangle, but three sides. It's like, yeah, that breaks down, because each side of a triangle is only part of the triangle. Jesus is not part of God. He is fully God. Others say, well, it's kind of like, you know, a phase of water, right? There's liquid and then solid and gas. They're all water, but they come in different ways. Yeah, but God doesn't come in different ways. He always is who he always is. And so maybe those analogies can help us get a little closer, but they all fall short because the reality is the Trinity is something that is just beyond our comprehension. Here's what's called in theological terms. It is an incomprehensible mystery, (laughs) That's what the definition of the Trinity is. And, and I think we hear that and like we begin to get a little uncomfortable because we don't like things that we can't understand. In fact, it can make us think that, well, this is totally irrational. It actually doesn't make any sense because it doesn't make sense to me as if we are the sum total of all knowledge in the world. But like we think that way. And so if it doesn't make sense to me, then it doesn't make sense at all. It feels irrational to us. And so therefore we think, well, it must not be true. And yet, isn't some of the most beautiful things in life beyond our ability to fully comprehend them? Try to explain what it's like for a parent to hold their child in their arms the first time. 
Right? You can try to explain it to someone who's never experienced it, but unless you've gone through it, words really fail to capture that moment. Try to put into words what it means to watch the sunset over the Grand Canyon or explain why a certain piece of music can move us to tears. I would suggest that the more beautiful things are, the more profound they are, and the less we are able to fully comprehend them and explain them. And if that's true for the beauty of the created things of this world, shouldn't we expect it to be true of the beauty of the creator of this world? Should we not expect that he would be so beautiful and so profound that in many ways he would be beyond the comprehension of our small, finite minds. And let's make no mistake. Friends, when we're talking about God being triune, this is not a dusty doctrine. No, this is the beautiful heart of our Christian faith. God being triune means that for all eternity, God has been a being of love. Because for all eternity, there's always been a person for God to love. The Father, Son, and Spirit have always been in a perpetual dance of love with one another. And the whole world has been created out of an overflow of this love that God has within himself. His love is so glorious that he has, as John Calvin says, created the world to be a theater to which we can watch his glory. While we can't fully comprehend the Trinity, friends, we should be so grateful for the Trinity, because it tells us that God is love and that our purpose in life is to know and to celebrate and to enjoy and to revel in this great love of God. And so as we work our way back to the text, this is saying to us that Jesus is one of these three persons of God. And so all the glory that exists within the one true God all the power and the might and the worth and the exaltation of his holy being, all of God's glory is Jesus' glory because Jesus is God. Therefore, there is no one who is more exalted than him because there is no one who is like this God. Exodus chapter 15, 11 draws our attention to this. As it says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. 1 Samuel 2.2 answers that rhetorical question by saying, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. Friends, Jesus is unparalleled in his exaltation. He is the eternal, holy, all-powerful, almighty, transcendent, exalted, resplendently radiant, glorious God. And he chose not to hold on to that. Jesus chose not to count the riches of heaven, the glory of the angels' praises, the power, authority, and pleasure that were all rightfully his as equal with God. He chose not to count those as things to hold on to. But he emptied himself. Friends, seeing the glory of his divinity should make his humility astounding to us. Seeing how low he became shows us how loved we are. Let's consider how low he became by looking at the humility of 
Jesus. Verse 7 tells us that he emptied himself. Now, we need to understand that this emptying does not mean that Jesus stopped being God. Colossians 1.17 says that in Jesus, all things hold together. And so if Jesus stopped being God, the world would have blown apart. And so Jesus did not, indeed he could not, stop being who he always is. His emptying did not come through him stopping being God. No, look at how verse 7 describes what it means for him to empty himself. It says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus' emptying came not through a subtraction, but through an addition. His emptying was not the subtraction of his divinity, but the addition of our humanity. Again, John Owen helps us here when he writes and says, Paul does not say that he stopped being God. But though continuing to be God, he took the form of a servant. That is, he took our nature upon him. He became what he was not, but did not cease to be what he always was. Jesus' emptying did not come from him ceasing to be who he always was in his divine nature. His emptying came by him adding into himself a human nature. And so Jesus is the only being in all of existence who has two natures. He is fully God and fully man. Not half and half, kind of mixed together, confused together. No, no, he is distinctly fully God and fully man. Not sometimes one, not sometimes another. No, both fully God and fully man at all times. And this does not make his humility any less. It actually magnifies it even more. Because what this means is that when Jesus came to earth, it's not like he forgot he was God. Or what it meant for him to be God. No, every moment he was here on earth, he knew the eternal glory that was rightfully his. You know, sometimes for us, ignorance can be bliss. We don't know what we're missing out on. And so I don't miss flying on private jets because I've never flown on a private jet. You know, when I'm all crowded in a commercial flight, you know, my knees are up to my eyeballs. I'm not sitting there and be like, oh man, if only I was on a, a golf stream right now, right? Like that thought doesn't enter my mind. I don't miss flying on private jets because I never have and I never will. You know, for me, like I'm happy if I get upgraded to like an exit row, right? At least my eye, you know, I like to go from my eyeballs to like maybe down to the ground, you know, and I'm good. I'm a, I'm a happy camper when that happens in my life. I've been told that once you fly private, you really are ruined for flying any kind of other way. But I'm just blissfully ignorant. I got no idea what's going on with that. Don't know any difference. But friends, there's no blissful ignorance for Jesus. No, it is with the praise of the angels echoing in his ears that he steps into the muck and mess of this world. He is fully God. And since he didn't stop being God, he never forgot what was rightfully his. Which makes his sense of loss all the greater. Few things gross me out more than rats. I think they are just foul creatures, right? I mean, they live in sewers. They survive by eating feces. Like, they are just disgusting. Imagine if me, with me, if you will, that one day you turned into a rat. 
but you still knew exactly what it meant to be a human, and you still had all your human sensibilities. Can you imagine the humiliation that that would be? Like, rats don't think their lifestyle is that big a deal because that's all that they know. But we'd be horrified because we aren't rats, and so we know that we weren't made to live like that. Friends, now consider this. The distance between our Creator and us, His created beings, is far greater than the distance between us and rats. Because rats are also, like us, created beings. And so just imagine the humility of what it meant for Jesus to grow in Mary's womb a person he had created. Imagine the humility of Jesus and what it must have been for him to receive nourishment from a placenta that he was upholding in that moment with his word of power. Friends, his condescension is beyond our comprehension. And not only that he was born into humanity, but also consider the family he chose to be born into. Like if I'm God, and I can be born into any family that I want, I'm probably going to pick a pretty cushy lifestyle. Like I want to be you know, born into a family of the rich and famous. Like for me, I'm probably going either between LeBron James or Dwayne The Rock Johnson. You know, like born, I'm going to be born in that family. Like I got a mansion. I'll finally get my chance to ride in a private jet, you know, floor seats to whatever sports event I want. Life would be great. And Jesus could have had that. I mean, if he's going to be human, he might as well come as a human in style. But that's not what he chose. He was not born into a family of kings. He was not born in a palace. No, when G Luke writes Jesus' biography in his Gospel of Luke, he says that, his mother was from Nazareth, and then he actually has to add a qualifier to that. Well, Nazareth is from Galilee, because no one would have known where Nazareth is from. People knew Galilee, so he mentions that, but no one had a reference point for Nazareth, because Nazareth had no trade routes that went through it, no major attractions, didn't even have a Greek temple that people would go and worship at. It didn't even have a local synagogue, like he had to go to the next town for that. Nazareth was very much like Podunkville. <laughs> And since Nazareth was so isolated, it was also a popular hangout for gangs of thieves. Not many people knew about Nazareth, but those that did knew it was not a good place. And so this is why in John's biography about Jesus, when people find out that Jesus' family is from Nazareth, they say with a sneer, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus was not born into a family of power and prestige, but to some hillbillies from the bad part of town. That, that, that's the family he chose to be born into. And the situation that he chose to be born into was when Caesar had ordered a census and every person had to go to their ancestral town. So his family goes to Bethlehem, which fulfills the prophecy of Micah that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. But since his family is of such little importance, they're put at the bottom of the rooming chart and Jesus has to be born in a barn and then laid in a manger. I'm not sure what your nativity set at home looks like if you have one, uh, but if you've ever been in a barn, you know that they're actually not that pleasant of places. You've got animal waste there, and all their spit and slobber and smells. And a manger is an animal's feeding trough. 
this is not the most hygienic of birthing centers. I love how John Murray puts it when he writes, it would have been a humiliation for the Son of God to have become man under the most ideal conditions with the majesty of the Creator on one hand and the humble status of the most dignifying creature on the other. But it was not such an incarnation that took place. No, it was not. Jesus was not born into ideal conditions. No, he could not have come into more humble circumstances. And he could not have come for a more humble purpose. It says that he was found in human form in verse 8, and then it goes on to say he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. The Son was sent by the Father to stand in our place and receive our judgment of death. There's only one judgment that people who use the life that God gave to live their own way, there's only one judgment that that deserves. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. When we use the life that God has given us to instead live our own way, it might not necessarily even be a bad way, it's just our way instead of God's way. That is rebellion against the God who gave us life. And therefore, his justice requires that he take back that life. Jesus was born to give his life for ours. He was born to die. Because only a man could rightly bear the judgment that mankind deserves. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. One of the places it makes it clear is Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, where it says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Right? God cannot just justify us. He cannot just absorb our sinfulness and forgive us. No, that would be an act of injustice of such proportions that God says justifying a wicked person is an abomination. And so God's not going to break his word and make himself an abomination. And so God could not just forgive our sins but he did not want to judge us for them at the same time. And so Jesus came so that he could become one of us and be justly charged for the sins that we do. Jesus came for the most humble of purposes to take on the guilt of our sin and receive the penalty of death that we deserve. And he then died in the most humiliating of ways. It says he didn't just die, it says he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. The cross is such a common symbol in our culture that I think we can forget the horror of what it means. Death on a cross was so horrific that it was illegal to kill Roman citizens in that way because they felt that even their worst criminals deserved a more dignified death than death on a cross. When you were executed on a cross, you would first be stripped bare so you would be exposed to the elements and to people's mocking and their jeers. And the cross was no pleasant way to die. No, it was a torture device. Nails were driven through your hands and feet, the places where the nerves are most tightly bundled. And so it sends excruciating pain shooting through your body. In fact, that word excruciating 
was specifically created to describe the unique kind of pain that the cross created. After being nailed to that crossbeam of wood, you'd be hung vertically, and the weight of your chest would collapse in upon your lungs, and you would not be able to breathe. How people died through execution on the cross was death through suffocation. And when our body sense that we are suffocating, we have involuntary reflexes that kick in and push against that which is choking us. And so here's what would happen on the cross. As that person begins to suffocate, their reflexes would kick in and they would push up on their feet and pull down on their hands to give themselves a little bit of relief for their lungs to breathe. But that pushing and pulling would further rip into their nerves that were already torn apart in their hands and feet, sending fresh pain through their bodies. And so they collapse down again in agony to once again begin the process of suffocation. And on and on it would go. Until eventually, out of sheer exhaustion, they couldn't push up anymore. And they would just suffocate and die. That's the kind of death that Jesus chose. But even more than the pain, Deuteronomy chapter 21 says that anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. And so his people came and gathered at the foot of the cross. They mocked him because his death was not just a death. It was a sign of spiritual judgment. As they mocked him, oh, you think you're such a holy man. Look at you now. You're being cursed by God. What they didn't understand was that he was taking that curse for them and for us. Friends, this is our humble king. The crown he chose to wear was a crown of thorns. His scepter was the iron spikes driven through his hands. His throne was that old rugged cross. In his humility, he confined his divinity to our humanity. He was born into obscurity and he died horrifically as the sinless Savior became our shame and the faultless Lord was charged with our guilt and the holy God took on our curse. Friends, God made himself so, so low. For you. For you. Why did he do all this? We don't, we don't have to guess why he did all this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. John chapter 3 verse 16. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4 Friends, seeing how low he became shows us how loved we are. And so as we come to a close, here's my question for myself and my question for you. How often and frequently and regularly are you living mindful of this love? If you're a Christian, The reality is this text is saying nothing that is new to us. 
This is the basic gospel. This is the good news that we came to believe day one when we put our faith in Christ. And yet sometimes, can't the good news of the gospel begin to feel like old news to us? Can't sometimes this become just background noise as we go through the hustle and bustle of our lives? Can't this beautiful truth of God's love, well, it can become like that violin player, a beauty that gets missed. Friends, here is what God is inviting us into today. He's inviting us to stop and to listen to the beauty of the music of his love. The next time you're at work and you are so stressed out, here's what you need. You need to stop and listen to the beautiful music of his love. The God who loves you will take care of you. Breathe. Listen to the music of his love. The next time you are fearful or anxious about what is happening or what could happen, stop and listen to the music of his beautiful love. The God who loves you will never forsake you, but will always see you through even the hardest of times. Married couples, the next time you're in a conflict with your spouse, stop and listen to the music of his beautiful love. James chapter 4, verse 1 says that our fights and quarrels come from our desires that are not being fulfilled. We want something and we're not getting it. Friends, when our desires are fulfilled in Christ, when we're listening to the beautiful music of his love, that is what positions us then to not fight our spouses, but to work together with our spouses to figure some stuff out. Parents, when your kids are pushing every button that you didn't even know you had, stop and listen to the beautiful music of his love. And allow his love for you to empower you and fill you with the patience and grace that you need for your child. For any of us, the next time someone wrongs you and you want to respond in kind, stop and listen to the beautiful music of his love and allow his love to bring you peace and give you power to forgive and to treat others with kindness as you've been treated so kindly by this amazing God. Friends, it is his love that brings us peace and joy and wholeness and life. And so we need to live in such a way that we regularly stop and listen to the music of his beautiful love. If you're here and you're listening to this and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I hope today that you're beginning to hear some of this music. You're so loved by God. Would you believe that today? Man, I pray that you would. Would you today confess that you're a sinner who deserves death and believe, though, that you are so loved by God that Jesus came to die the death you deserve in your place? Oh, man, there's so much love in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, whether you've been a Christian for decades 
or whether today will be your first day of faith, here's what we're being invited into. Let's behold our humble king. Let's behold our humble king. Let's see how low he became, which shows us how loved we are. And may we be moved to praise God for the beauty of that precious music. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.